Hi, I'm Eric Voss. And I'm Philip Molina. And Avengers Endgame concluded with the most epic crossover battle sequence that hatched open every MCU Easter egg from the past 11 years and scrambled them into an omelet that we love 3,000. So, we had to split our freaking Avengers Endgame breakdown into two in-depth halves. So this is part two right now. Go check out part one if you haven't already for all the missable details in that artful way the filmmakers set up this part of the finale. Honestly, this all plays like its own movie, so it's worthy of its own video analyzing it. Spoiler warning in case we ruin your life with this analysis. And let's pick up where we left off. The Avengers having returned from their time heist, six Infinity Stones richer, but one Black Widow poorer. And then Thor wants to use the stones to bring her back, but Clint assures him, nah, dog, it can't be done. Last episode, we actually explained how Endgame's description of Vormir as the center of celestial existence could hint at maybe a connection to the Marvel Celestials, which would make the blood sacrifice for the Soul Stone irreversible. Stark designs his own Infinity Gauntlet, which, unlike Thanos' gauntlet, goes on the right hand. Thanos is using his left hand to destroy half of all life, and the Avengers are using their right hand to bring it back. It's another example of the spiritual undercurrent of Infinity War and Endgame. Left-handedness in Judeo-Christian tradition was once seen as wrong and evil. They used to force unfortunate left-handed kids to use their right hands. We've come a long way. Since the power of the Infinity Stones is a godly power, it makes sense for Stark to identify his gauntlet as the one to set the universe back on the right path. So then Thor volunteers to use the gauntlet, claiming to be the strongest Avenger. That's uh, my Thor impression. It's nothing. Perfect. Uh, yeah. This is a callback to Ragnarok, when Thor tries to identify himself to the Quinjet as strongest Avenger, and is totally denied. But then Banner logs in, and the computer's like, yeah, strongest Avenger. So staying true to that, it's Banner slash Hulk who steps up, and he reminds us that the stones emit gamma radiation, which is the same radiation that gave him his powers, and that maybe Banner was born exactly for this moment. This connection was established way back in the first Avengers when Nick Fury brought in Bruce Banner because of his gamma radiation detection technology that could be used to track Loki's movement mm. with the stones. Banner screams as a gauntlet and stones burn his arm and the others consider taking it off, but Cap checks in with them asking if he can handle it. This recalls the moment of Cap's supercharge experiment in his first movie when he screamed in agony and Tony's father, Howard, almost shut it all down, but Cap screamed back that no, he could do this. So while all this this is happening, Nebula, who is actually her evil 2014 self, who snuck back into the present with the others, she uses the quantum tunnel to beam up Thanos' entire warship from the past. Now, to clear up any confusion, yes, the Avengers were only supposed to have enough pin particles for a round trip for themselves alone, but According to the filmmakers, Ebony Ma is like a brilliant scientist and anything they need him to be apparently. He could reverse engineer the pin particle technology from 2014 Nebula's stolen vial and they could use that to bring Thanos, his ship, his Black Order, and his entire army to the future. So even though Banner is successful in snapping everyone back, we don't get to enjoy it for too long because Thanos wrecks Avengers HQ. And you know, let's take a moment to compare this Thanos to who Thanos was in Infinity War. Thanos came into Infinity War already accomplishing the unprecedented feat of collecting two Infinity Stones. That makes Thanos kind of a zen-like deity throughout that movie. He takes off his armor, he cries at one point, he tells Stark, I hope they remember you. He tells Wanda, I understand my child better than anyone. This guy's empathy, he wants to retire on a farm. And, you know, he killed Vision, which, you know, some of us were actually kind of okay with. That is not okay, but okay kind of. But yeah. this 2014 Thanos is still a hungry, hungry warmonger. He's younger, he's stronger, still armored, still packing. 
self-harming, he still wants blood. And his response to learning his future snap doesn't lead to a grateful universe is to tear this universe to shreds and start over. Kill everyone. Much like the one-dimensional SOB that Thanos is in the comics. Hey, these are a lot of judgments against Thanos. Thanos, I think that you have a point. Anyway, <laughs> in the ruins of HQ, Thanos did nothing wrong. He did some things wrong. <laughs> yeah, he did. In the ruins of their HQ, Banner slash Hulk holds up a huge chunk of rubble to protect Rhodey and Rocket, just like the comics image, actually, from Secret Wars number four, and that leaves Stark, Cap, and Thor on the surface, which are kind of like the Holy Marvel Trinity. Yeah. They're the ones that are left to confront the Mad Titan. So when Thor charges up his combined power of Stormbreaker and Meow Meow, his shaggy beard twists into that sweet braid of a Norse god. The fight choreography of this three-on-one fight is filled with callbacks to Marvel past. Thor blasts lightning into Stark's suit, which Stark uses to supercharge his repulsors, just like Thor accidentally did with his lightning in the first Avengers. And Thanos pins Thor, pushing Stormbreaker into his chest, a reversal of when Thor didn't go for Thanos' head in Infinity War. And of course, the most epic visual of this movie, the rise of Mjolnir, wielded by Captain America. Thor cheers, I knew it! Because this is a callback to the test of strength in Age of Ultron, when Cap slightly budged Mjolnir, causing Thor to briefly freak out that someone else might be worthy. You know, I like to think that Cap could have lifted Mjolnir in that moment, but he decided to hold back to spare Thor's pride. Apparently, when Thor loses his pride, he loses his workout routine and turns into melted ice cream. Then Cap tosses his shield and throws Mjolnir into it, creating a powerful clung shockwave that knocks Thanos off his feet. He's calling back, actually, that same team-up move with him and Thor back in Age of Ultron. But Thanos, four years younger, remember, four years hotter, he's more battle-hungry than his older self was. He beats down all three of them in this moment, and he breaks Cap's shield, which is a nod not only to the Infinity Gauntlet comics, but we're finally seeing the nightmare vision that Tony had way back in Age of Ultron. That's all in the surroundings here. The rubble, the coming leviathans, all the visuals are Stark's worst fears becoming realized. Thanos assembles his full army, including the Black Order and the Chitauri, the leviathans. Cap gets to his feet and faces Thanos alone. Another epic visual from the Infinity Gauntlet comics, the moment Cap limps up to Thanos and says, as long as one man stands against you, Thanos, you'll never be able to claim victory. So you haven't worked out that impression? Yet? Uh, I can't uh, impersonate a two-dimensional comic. Are you crazy? It's the voices of millions of children. Children. But then, back up, the voice of Sam Wilson comes in saying, on your left, a callback to Cap and Falcon's recurring line from Winter Soldier. And at the end of the movie, Sam greets old man Cap on his left. Get it? Yes. Because he's more liberal. So then the slingering portals from Doc Strange and Wong open, and they return pretty much everyone who's available to the battle. We're talking Black Panther, we're talking Shuri, Okoye from Wakanda. They're joined by the combined tribal forces with M'Baku chanting Ibombe! Their battle cry from Infinity War that translates to Hold fast. Bucky and Groot also, of course, join them. Doctor Strange brings in Drax and Mantis and Star-Lord and Peter Parker, all from Titan, and the remaining Asgardian soldiers. We're talking Korg, Meek, Valkyrie on her freaking Pegasus, alongside Scarlet Witch on nothing, plus all of the sorcerers that Wong could gather, Hope Van Dyne, and behind her, freaking Howard <laughs> the Duck, wielding some massive gun. He comes in with a bunch of the Ravagers from Guardians of the Galaxy, and of course, Pepper Potts wearing, finally, the blue-colored Stark armor, a nod to her rescue incarnation in the comics. She's even there, too, pushing goop on all of us. It's everybody. <laughs> Cap sees everyone and says, Avengers, assemble. 
paying off that tease at the end of Age of Ultron when he didn't say it. And he says it while holding Mjolnir. It evokes the image from the Fear Itself comics when he says that. Strange says to Wong, is that everyone? And Wong's like, uh, you wanted more? It's a great meta nod for Marvel to the fans who, despite probably feeling pretty overwhelmed with joy in this moment, there's probably some of you looking for Daredevil and Punisher and feeling disappointed. The screenwriters actually said that they considered bringing in the Marvel Netflix Defenders Universe heroes, but in the end they needed to pay off faces from the Marvel films and choosing this moment to introduce characters from shows that maybe sizable portions of the film audiences didn't watch would probably just feel weird. But Howard the Duck, everybody recognizes Howard the Duck, right? We are the real Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg and uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of The Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why The Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are The Real Brady, Brady Bros. Bros. So then the battle features highlight after highlight after a highlight. It's like um, you have to watch it 30 times to catch all these things. Scott Lang as Giant Man is punching a Leviathan. Falcon uses his wings to stab a beast, which is the only move I want Falcon to use from now on. <laughs> Drax quick stabs a beast with his daggers like he did in the stomach lining of the obelisk in Guardians 2. Thor makes Cap swap Stormbreaker from Mjolnir because he's got to take the small one. One great callback that came up is when Hope Van Dyne radioed to Cap saying, we're on it, Cap. And then Scott gives her this knowing look. It's actually a callback to the joke in Ant-Man and the Wasp when Hope is mocking Scott for thinking he's on this nickname basis with Steve Rogers. Cap needed help. Cap? in America. Captain. Cap is what we call him. While this is going on, Stark's gauntlet trades hands from Avenger to Avenger, like a football in a rush to the goal line. This was actually foreshadowed in the earlier scene, with Stark and Nebula flicking folded footballs on the Benatar. The possession goes from Hawkeye to 2014 Nebula, similar to the moment Nebula possesses the gauntlet in the comics, then back to Hawkeye, Black Panther, then to Spider-Man, Spider-Man with an assist from Valkyrie, Captain Marvel before Thanos and Stark wrestle over it. But when Black Panther takes it, he says, Clint, pass me the gauntlet, a nod to their first interaction in Civil War. We haven't met yet, I'm Clint. I don't care. When Peter has the gauntlet, he finally activates instant kill mode, a function in a suit that he was too afraid to use in Spider-Man Homecoming. Activating instant kill. No, 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 I don't want to kill anybody. Deactivating instant kill. And when Carol gets the gauntlet from Spider-Man, he introduces himself as Peter Parker, keeping with his habit of telling everyone his actual name. I'm Peter, by the way. Doctor Strange. Oh, we're using made up names? Um, I'm Spider-Man then. I like Tom Holland who just improvises most of his dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Cap does call Peter Queens, which is a nod to their first interaction in Civil War. You got heart, kid. Where are you from? Queens! Brooklyn. And we gotta talk about the hug Tony Stark gives him. Peter sighs. This feels nice, which is a nod to the fake hug that Mr. Stark gave him in Spider-Man Homecoming. This is not a hug, I'm just grabbing the door for you. We're not there yet. Star-Lord also gets rescued by Gamora, who's her 2014 self and has not met Peter Quill yet, so she needs him in the balls twice calling back the moment that they met in Xandar in the first Guardians when Gamora kicked Quill in the you know, lower abdomen, which any guy knows is almost as bad because it yeah. kind of like nicks it. Yeah, it's, it's a ripple effect. Ripple effect, yeah. Ripple effect, yeah. yeah. Scarlet Witch confronts Thanos, snarling, you took everything from me. Thanos is like, I have no idea who you are. She's like, you will. There's actually some poetic justice in the precise way that Wanda and the Avengers avenge Thanos and the Black Order. We'll get to it later. But Wanda's beatdown forces Thanos to order his warship to rain fire. They all take cover. Rocket jumps on Groot to protect him. These two have always been close, but James Gunn revealed that Groot's final, I am Groot to Rocket, as he does 
dusted away and Infinity War translated to dad. God! Oh. They just had to pick the most painful thing you could yeah, say. Yeah. Captain Marvel then destroys the ship, joining Scarlet Witch, Okoye, Valkyrie, Pepper Potts, Mantis, Shuri, Wasp, and Gamora. It's an all-female badass lineup. It's a loose nod actually to the A-Force in the Marvel comics, which is the first all-female Avengers lineup from the Secret Wars era. That included She-Hulk, Dazzler, Nico Minoru, Medusa, Carol Danvers actually joins later. Yeah. During this drive, you can briefly see Okoye get the kill on Corvus Glaive of Thanos' Black Order, avenging, finally, the Dora Milaje guards that Corvus killed back in Shuri's lab in Infinity War. During this melee, Stark checks in with Doctor Strange, who initially won't confirm for Stark if this is the one out of the 14,605 future outcomes that he foresaw in Infinity War, in which they won. Worried that this wish future won't come true if he tells Tony, but right at the end, Strange holds up one finger to Stark, and you'll notice his hand quivers, which is a nice physical touch from Benedict Cumberbatch, who vibrates his hands like this whenever he conjures spells, since remember, the muscles and tendons of Strange's hands were all physically damaged in the car accident. So in addition to confirming to Stark that this is the one victorious future, Strange is echoing the promise that Stark made to Strange after Strange saved his life on Titan in Infinity War. I owe you one. And this one that Stark owes Strange is the sacrifice play that will ensure this victory happens. So it's the final face-off between Thanos and Stark, and Thanos tries to snap, but finds is not very effective. He turns over the gauntlet to find the stones are missing, and that turning over and seeing that the gauntlet is not effective right now, that's a callback to what Rocket did at the beginning in Thanos' farmhouse, realizing, oh, gauntlet's empty. Stones are gone. And it turns out what happened is that Stark used his nanotech armor to absorb the stones into his own armor. The Stark gauntlet is connected to the same network of nanobots that is suited. So in Infinity War, there was actually a subtle hint toward this when Stark took off his sunglasses in New York as the nanotech armor spread all over his body. It absorbed the sunglasses, yeah, if you yeah. notice. And then Stark responds to Thanos saying, I am inevitable. With a callback to his classic badass moment at the end of his first movie, I am. Iron Man. So Stark snaps away all of Thanos' forces, and this snap math, not to mention, mirrors the ending of Infinity War. Thanos sits, weakened, just like he did on the farm in the final shot in Infinity War. Behind him, Ebony Maw clutches his stomach and limps toward him, exactly how Peter Parker didn't feel so good with Stark on Titan. Ebony Maw's like, I don't feel so good, I'm sorry. <laughs> and further in the background, Proxima Midnight kneels beside the body of her husband, Corvus Glaive. Yes, they are actually married. It's recreating the silhouette of Wanda holding Vision's body in Infinity War. So Wanda Maximoff receives her poetic justice, just in a very cold eye for an eye kind of way. Yeah. So the impact blast of the snap itself, as we saw with Hulk and Thanos, is just too much for Tony Stark to handle, and his final moments are a true emotional gut punch. Peter Parker and all of us, he's sobbing as he watches them fade. It's actually a reversal of the end of Infinity War, Stark watching Peter fade. Also, Pepper Potts tells him, it's okay, you can rest now. Earlier in the film, she told Tony he wouldn't be able to sleep if he didn't try to fix the snap. Now that he has, he can finally sleep. He can rest. Tony making this sacrifice pays off the argument he and Cap had way back in the first Avengers. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play. But Cap wasn't the only one wrong. In that same scene, Stark tells Cap, Everything special about you came out of a bottle. So both Avengers actually proved the other one wrong. Stark made the sacrifice play, and Cap, by wielding Mjolnir, proved he does possess an innate power underneath his lab-enhanced, utterly amazing physique. 
He's got worthiness in there. And a, and a well-defined V-line. This whole movie led to this moment. Cap's goodbye message to Pepper on the Benatar foreshadowed scarring and damage to his right side and the wiping of a tear. And I'm sure there's a tinfoil interpretation of this movie in which Tony actually did die on the Benatar and the glowing arrival of Captain Marvel was an angel giving him this chance to live in a perfect afterlife of having a kid with Pepper on a farm, cracking the code of time travel and saving everyone. So if Endgame's plot is a little too crazy for you, there you go. It was just all the dream of a dying man. But this movie's ending returns to that post-mortem goodbye projected from the Iron Man helmet and echoes Howard Stark leaving behind a message for Tony in Iron Man 2. My greatest creation is you. And Stark says, if you told me years ago that we weren't alone in the universe, I wouldn't have believed the extent of it. It's a subtle nod to the moment Nick Fury recruited Stark to join the Avengers. Mr. Stark, you're part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. Stark's funeral then shows his old arc reactor, says proof Tony Stark has a heart. It was actually given to him by Pepper in the first Iron Man, and the music composed by Alan Silvestri here is playing over the final minutes. It actually was teased earlier and just throughout the movie. For instance, you could hear it with Tony when he's kind of fading away at the Benatar. It plays any time that you're supposed to realize Tony is a mortal man who might die or ultimately when he does die. So then everybody shows up at his funeral and it's all the familiar faces but a lot of people are like wait no huh who's that dude <laughs> that one unfamiliar face that's harley keener the kid from tennessee that tony met in iron man 3 with ty simpkins actually returning for his role happy hogan sits with morgan who says that she wants cheeseburgers a callback to the only food Tony wanted to eat after returning in the first Iron Man. If you remember, that Burger King cheeseburger was actually a meta reference to Robert Downey Jr.'s real life recovery from his drug addiction. He said once when he was high, he ordered a disgusting burger and a soda and he panicked that something really bad was gonna happen. So he ended up throwing all the drugs in his car into the ocean and then got cleaned up. He said Burger King saved his life, but I don't imagine Burger King likes to hear this story. Why also, not? <laughs> also, if you're gonna throw out your drugs, great, but you know, somewhere besides the open ocean, I think those whales that Cap spotted in the Hudson are on crack. So Clint still feels bad about Natasha and he tells Wanda she knows that we won and Wanda replies they both do, referencing Vision as another major Avenger who unfortunately did not get to come back in this movie, but they will both actually be appearing in the Disney Plus series WandaVision. So you can look forward to that somehow getting figured out and showing up again. A montage then shows Peter Parker returning to school and reuniting with Ned. So it appears that Ned is probably the same age or just aging real well, <laughs> but it would probably suggest that he also was probably dusted. In fact, just going out on a limb here and saying, Maybe all of the characters that are going to appear in Spider-Man Far From Home, they probably are all happen to be people that also were dusted. MJ, Flash, Betty Brant, none of them appear to be five years older than anything we've seen. But we'll dig into Endgame's connection to Far From Home in a future episode. And Thor joins the Guardians of the Galaxy, undercutting Peter Quill's authority, as he did in Infinity War. Except now, Thor is the overweight one, flipping the fat jokes away from Quill as they were before. Not muscular. Who are you kidding, Quill? You're one sandwich away from fat. Yeah, right. It's true. You have put on weight. And that brings us to Cap's mysterious mission to return the Infinity Stones to their proper places in the timeline. Before he jumps, he tells Bucky, don't do anything stupid until I get back. And Bucky responds, how can I? You've taken all the stupid with you. Which is a callback to their exchange in the first Cap movie. So Endgame doesn't show us Cap's return trip, and for good reason, because it's kind of nuts to think about what he would have had to do to put all those stones back. Some of them would have been like simple swaps. Sure, put the Power Stone back in the Morag Temple, give the Time Stone back to the HM1, she gets it. Put the Space Stone back in the Shield basement. 
But that also means Cap had to give the scepter with the Mind Stone back to Hydra, which could not have been easy for him to do. They probably murdered millions with it. And also, really weird, he had to reinsert the ether back into Jane Foster on Asgard, which was a very awkward conversation at the least. Right, yeah, like, oh, lady, uh, a raccoon just took this out of you, and I'm yeah, going to shove this open your mouth. angry sludge back in you. <laughs> drink it, drink it. Ugh, we have no idea. Actually, we do. Full disclosure, guys, Philip and I actually do know what happened on Cap's return trip. We went back in time to part one of this video when I still had the Infinity Gauntlet, remember that? Well, we stole the gauntlet from our past selves and we used the gauntlet's infinite power to see all of the weird stuff that Cap really did in the past. It is just too awful to discuss. Like, we don't want to ruin your memory of Cap. Yeah, apparently everyone in the 1940s was not a good person by today's standards. Yeah, also, I finally understand why he did not want to tell Sam what he's been up to. It was not good. Oh yeah, no, mm -hmm. ugh. But let's discuss this mystery of the Soul Stone. Since you get the Soul Stone by sacrificing a loved one, when you return the Soul Stone, do you get that loved one back? Do you have to take him back if you didn't really miss your loved one that much? Is it a matter of just throwing the stone back into that pond? Kind of like Job trying to throw the letter back into the ocean. This could be one way Black Widow could still be alive, but it's worth considering the possibility that Cap might have kept the Soul Stone as like a safeguard against anyone trying to regather the stones in this new timeline that he's in. Or maybe returning the Soul Stone gave him his soul back in a metaphorical way, allowing him to return to the 1940s and live out his life with Peggy Carter, his soulmate. Yeah, either way the Russos did confirm that Cap's new life with Peggy Carter that all happened in a separate timeline. Apparently old Cap is showing up back in this timeline at the end of the movie through some other mysterious means that they said could get addressed in a future film where they'll retcon whatever Probably, it was that he yeah. died. But let's actually talk about old man Cap here. He passes on the mantle of Captain America to Sam, not Bucky, which surprised many of you and many of us. But Bucky gives Sam this understanding, like knowing Nod. Yeah. Since old Cap came from a different timeline, maybe in that reality, Bucky already did serve as Captain America. I can't actually imagine a scenario where Cap went back to the 40s and then would let his best friend just spend 50 years being brainwashed and tortured in Siberia by yeah. Hydra. But uh, it turns out, yeah, Cap did some crazy stuff. Just you, half just, of it. You think yeah. you know a hero. Yeah. So maybe Steve and Bucky did have a lifetime of adventures under the Captain America name. Maybe it didn't go so well when he picked Bucky. Yeah, maybe Bucky <laughs> doesn't want it. Yeah, maybe Bucky uh, just reveals that it's not great to give it to a Russian assassin. Yeah, a hated uh, <laughs> yeah. worldwide terrorist. Yeah, and make him Captain America. Either way, he decides in this timeline, he wants Sam to have a turn. Uh, hopefully the upcoming Falcon and Winter Soldier series on Disney Plus will actually dive into this maybe rivalry, which yeah, could be really interesting. Be fun. When Old Cap hands off his shield to Sam, notice how he removes it from this artist portfolio case, as Steve Rogers did in some of the classic comics, actually. This is a nod to Steve's interest in sketching, which we actually saw him do briefly in the first movie and in a deleted sequence of the first Avengers. That sequence explored just how melancholy and out of place Cap felt as a soldier removed from his time. So it's particularly satisfying to know that Steve was able to return and live the life that he always wanted. When Sam asks him about Peggy, he smiles and keeps his memories to himself, similar to the way Tom Hanks's World War II captain and Saving Private Ryan did, refusing to talk about his wife. So finally, the closing scene shows Cap and Peggy slow dancing in their home back in the 1940s when people were racist it turns out but Cap finally does take Peggy up on that rain check that he left with her way back in the first film you know I still don't know how to dance I'll show you how just be there we'll have the band play something real slow everybody dance now <laughs> <laughs>
You actually might recognize this slow song. It's called It's Been a Long, Long Time. And it's a favorite of Caps. Back in Winter Soldier, Sharon Carter, Peggy's great niece, told Steve he left his stereo on and Nick Fury was playing that exact song in his apartment as a way to cover their conversation from being recorded. Real quick, uh, the fact that Cap had kind of a thing with Sharon Carter, I hope didn't come up with her auntie, Peggy Carter. It, it was sweet, it was innocent. He's just, you know, getting, getting his kicks. And if you actually look into the history of this song, this recording was by Harry James and with vocals by Kitty Callan. It was a huge hit in 1945 because the lyrics are from the perspective of a woman welcoming home her loved one returning from the war. This is during a time when many American spouses were embracing their returning soldiers and the way this woman embraces her soldier returning from a very distant battlefield. So Avengers Endgame is actually a story about destinations and trajectories and the two figures at the center of the story, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, they began these films at complete opposite ends of the continuum. Tony was kind of a selfish prick and Steve was insufferably selfless as a Boy Scout. But in Endgame, these two heroes set off in the boldest trajectories of their lives. Tony gives up his perfect life with his family to go on a mission that he probably knows will take his life. He lays on the wire. Steve, for the first time really, acts selfishly. He wants a life with Peggy, so he treats himself to one. But before he does that, he carries the burden of putting the world back together. Steve's destination is enlightened self-interest. Tony's destination is selflessness. And both Avengers bullseye their endgames. It's the exact same journey Eric and I have been on all these years. Comment down below with your favorite moment from Avengers Endgame, and be sure to watch part one of this breakdown if you haven't already. We covered so many details <laughs> in it. The filmmakers hid so much in every single scene. Also, by the Way, like not just Easter eggs and stuff, but the interesting filmmaking tricks and visuals that make Endgame this really rich movie going experience, bigger than any movie we've ever seen. Subscribe to New Rockstars. We do deep dives into everything that you love Marvel, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, DC, even like Pixar movies, horror films, Marvel, so Marvel, more Marvel, uh, and sometimes classic beloved movies that you still rewatch year after year. Like, we'll show you all the cool stuff that you might have overlooked in all of those movies. And make sure to subscribe to our new podcast feed called Inside Marvel. It gives you early access to all of our Marvel breakdowns and theory videos. Some of that upcoming content is also just audio only bonus content. And even these kinds of things, they come out there first. So if you're hungry for it, then you better subscribe. Follow me on Twitter at Fimo and on Instagram at Philip Molina. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EA Voss. Thank you for watching and oh, we gotta go back in time and go uh, fix all the disgusting things that Cap did. All right, we'll each pose as our favorite Avenger and then set them straight. Great, great.